Pastor George here. I wanted to take a second and thank you for checking out our online messages. Our prayer is that this resource will challenge you, encourage you, and empower you as you uh, dig deeper in your relationship with Christ. But in no way will it replace God's plan for your active involvement in a local church. I do want to take a second and ask you to uh, prayerfully consider as you participate and listen to this resource, partnering with Revive as we uh, pursue our mission of seeing people live their fullest life in Christ. You can do this by going online to revivechurchga.com backslash give and making a one-time donation or setting up a recurring gift. It's through the generosity of others that we're able to provide um, a resource like this one. With that being said, uh, I do want to thank you again, and here is today's message. Something goes wrong, ends don't meet. What do we do as the church in those times? What do we do when life isn't what we thought it was going to be? A couple of weeks ago, um, kind of the church at large started Lent, right? And a lot of there's a lot of questions around Lent, and so I kind of didn't know if we were going to do a whole series on it or something different leading up to Easter. So we're just going to do one message on Lent. Next week, we start a new series called Easter Eggs, and we kind of look at moments of Jesus throughout the Old Testament as we lead up to Easter. But for this week, I want to kind of unpack what Lent is, because it often has a lot of questions around it. Um, It seems like some Christians practice it, some don't. It's similar to like Christmas and Easter, but it's not. People aren't as consistent with it, so there can be some questions around it. And I think that when we get to the heart of what Lent is, it can help us answer that question. What do we do with the difficulties of life? Does anybody have a favorite season of the year? You guys can talk back to me right now. What's your favorite season of the year? Fall? Summer? Fall? Winter. <laughs> All right, I, I'm a I'm a fall guy myself. I like the I like the fall. It's probably my favorite. If I had to, although I often debate, I like spring too. Right, the weather's starting to get warm, but it's not too hot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right, you have uh, all the bright colors. Like, I love the bright colors. I love the life and the beauty you see happening around you. Um, also, diehard Braves fan, baseball, the beginning of baseball season. Like, these all make spring great, but I think my heart actually belongs to the fall because you've got the beautiful colors as the leaves change. My anniversary, one of my daughter's birthdays. You've got football, which for a long time was my heart, but not anymore. Okay, so you got football, you've got the pumpkin spice latte, all right? So there's all these, I think fall might be my favorite. But but the point is, there's there's the, we have these seasons, and these seasons kind of create a rhythm to the year, a rhythm to life. And in these seasons, there's markers that kind of mark the beginning of those, right? Like you got summer is a chance where you, people start to 
go swimming and have those things. You've got winter, the weather cools off. You've got the, the holiday season that kind of comes in with that. So there's, there's these seasons of life and these rhythms that go with that. And our culture operates on these rhythms. It operates, especially if you look at the holidays. You think like the beginning of the year, you've got New Year's and your new start. You could just watch TV and, or, or YouTube and commercial after commercials about the gym having a new uh, membership deal, right? And people go back to the gym. The gyms are full. You got this new start season that kind of leads into Valentine's Day and there's love in the air and all these things with that. Going into St. Patrick's Day, Easter, Pumpkin spice season, Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas. Like you kind of, we see our culture kind of move with those holidays. You see it in the grocery store or in Walmart where the decor changes colors. The things that they're selling in the front aisles are, are kind of change with the seasons. You start seeing fall stuff in the middle of summer. It's getting a little too far if you ask me. But there's, you see houses down the street. They have different decor outside. Life kind of operates with these rhythms. It's guided along. And we talked about a few weeks ago that when it comes to worship, worship also follows this rhythm. And the church has rhythms in which it worships as well. Now, a lot of those rhythms do match with those holidays and do match with our culture. This is not necessarily a bad thing or a good thing. It should be thought about intentionally. But The church has these rhythms, and part of those rhythms are things like Christmas and Easter, but also are things like Lent. Lent is very much like that. And so when it comes to Lent, if you uh, come from a church background that's not very liturgical, right, like no robes and candles or bells or or responsive reading, okay? Like I, I grew up in a United Methodist church for a season and I was like an acolyte, right? I had this robe and I would carry the candle down the aisle and then light the thing in the front. And like, I was always a really big kid. So the robe didn't really fit and it was a little embarrassing and I hated it, right? But <laughs> there's this sense, okay, this is, that's liturgical. And those churches tend to have a more strict calendar. The, even the, the um, preaching follows this liturgical calendar. And that's, so if you've been a part of that, you may have heard of Lent, and it, depending how deep you went into it, you may even know about things like the Epiphany and Maundy Thursday, okay? So these are all parts of the church calendar, but if you didn't grow up in that, I mean, I've had conversations with people who didn't know what Advent was, right? Because Advent is a season leading up to Christmas, but it's not Christmas. And a lot of churches, their calendar kind of just follows Easter and Christmas, right? And these are good things. These are good things. But so what I want to kind of get in is, is why some churches follow that calendar and practice Lent and some don't. And I hope there's, there's, because of that, there's all kinds of inconsistency with things like Lent. And I hope to answer some of the questions like, when does it start? How long? Why do they have Lent? What's with the black crosses on people's foreheads on this one day of year? Why do some Christians observe it and some don't? I might not answer all of these, but I want to kind of get at the heart at some of these issues. And, I, and, and here's the deal. Here's my kind of caveat. If you don't care, If you have no concern with Lent in the world, you don't practice it, you don't plan on practicing it, that's okay. But stay with me, because I think that the truth of why the church practices Lent can speak into your life to answer that question, what do we do in the difficult times? Just like Christmas is used to celebrate and remember the birth of of Jesus, just like Easter is used to celebrate and remember the resurrection of Jesus, Lent is a chance to observe and remember the other parts, 
of Jesus' life and ministry. Specifically, Lent is a chance to lament, repent, and anticipate. That's your outline. Lament, repent, and anticipate. Lent is a a chance to lament. I'm going to mix those up, I promise. You guys are just going to have to ignore it when I mix those up, okay? So Lent is a chance to... Lament is a, a prayer or a song expressing sorrow, pain, or confusion. And this can be pretty jarring, especially if you grew up in a church that just revolved around Christmas and Easter. This morning, we sing songs about it is well with my soul. The, the, our time of prayer was a song that the words were weep with me, right? And there's these, these times of, of almost a funeral type setting when things are not going right, where we're supposed to lament and cry out to God. But when all we ever do is focus on the, the Easter and the Christmas, we can become almost out of touch with reality. Now, don't get me wrong. Easter is every Sunday. We are an Easter people. I'm an Easter Christian. It's literally how I define my faith. It's because Jesus rose from the dead that I am a follower of his. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Every day we rejoice in the fact that death does not win. Christ is our victorious king. My sins are forgiven. I am blood-bought, set apart, made new, a spirit-filled Jesus follower. That's how I define who I am. We are an Easter people. But that truth, that truth does not mean that we don't have hard circumstances. That truth allows us to navigate even those difficult moments with trust and joy. But that truth does not mean that everything is always on the bright side. The truth is sometimes life happens. And when we pretend like bad things don't happen, we are out of touch with reality. Sometimes our life looks more like Job than the Joneses down the street. Sometimes our life is more like Joseph in the prison than Joseph in the palace. Sometimes we're on the mountaintop and we quote Psalm 22, 1. It says, the Lord is my light, my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? But sometimes we quote Psalm 10, 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Jesus lamented. We see on the cross in Matthew 27, he quotes that Psalm, Psalm 22, and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not just there on the cross. We see it in chapter 23. We see it in Luke 19, Mark 14, on and on. Jesus lamented. And Lent is a chance to take a step back, be honest about the difficult things that we experience in life, and lament, participate in lamenting along with Jesus. There are times in our life where we should lament. It is the chief way that we as Christians process grief. It's how we navigate the pains and the sorrows of this world in the presence of God. Um, The great theologian Johnny Cash He wrote a song called Man in Black. That's why I wore my black shirt today, all right? (laughs) He wrote a song, Man in Black. And in this song, if you listen to it, he describes wearing black for all the brokenness he sees in the world. He describes the poverty 
war, sick and lonely, the hopeless, the beaten down, and all these other sins that plague every city. He ends the song by saying, till things are brighter, I'll be the man in black. I'm sure you've heard it said before that as Christians, you are, or as humans, you're either coming out of a storm or going into one. We all have experienced the brokenness of this world. For some, it's the loss of a dear friend. For some, it's the feeling of being used as a stepping stool or being bullied or belittled by a peer or even a parent. For some, it's the feeling like you are unwanted or that you don't belong. The world is broken. We are broken and we see and experience the sickness, agony, and sadness all of the time. As Christians, what are we to do with all of this brokenness? Ignore it, pretend it's not there, compartmentalize it, just grin and bear it. I don't think that's the answer. We must take it to the Lord in honest lament. One third of the Psalms, the entire book of Lamentations, are all concerned with this process of lamenting. And just like every other emotion, God wants to hear about it. He wants to hear you voice your pain and your frustrations. He wants to hear you voice those things. He wants to hear us lament. Lent begins with Ash Wednesday, which was a couple of weeks ago. You may have seen people walking around with the black crosses on their forehead. It's this moment where you have the Ash Wednesday service and people will walk forward and the priest or whoever's the, the person in the front will take ashes and they put it in the shape of a cross on their forehead. And as they say, as they do this, they say something along the lines of from dust you have come and from dust you will go, from dust to dust. And it's this reminder that we as human beings are finite, limited people. It's a reminder that we are broken people in a broken world. When we fast, which starts on Ash Wednesday, it's a 40-day fast. And when we fast, we feel that hunger pain or that longing for the thing that we have given up. And it's a pointer that until the day Christ returns, there will be a longing and pain in this world. And all the brokenness and all the longing and all this pain, Lent is a calling to feel those emotions. It's a calling to be honest and feel those things. But we do not feel them alone. We do not grieve alone. We are not heartbroken alone. But we are to take those emotions and in lamenting, we are to bring them to God. We are to lament to God. We are to lament with him. So when it comes to Lent, it's a practice of lamenting. Whether you do the 40-day fast or your church follows those things or not, my challenge is that you will practice lamenting. When life is not going right, when things are bothering you, you would put this into practice. Google the songs of lament. Read them. Listen to them. Memorize them. Read the book of Lamentations. Write down your own laments in a journal. And as we lament, as you process this pain, the heartbreak, the brokenness, when things don't work out like they should, as you, rem- as you do that, remember Jesus. Our greatest hope in every lament is that one day, lament will be no more. 
In the new Jerusalem, the dead will rise. The king will make all things right. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. That's what we read at the end of our Bible. That's what we read in the book of Revelations. All things will be made new. There will be no more mourning. There will be no more need to lament. So as we talk about Lent, think about times, think about when the things aren't right like they should be. Let's not just ignore it, but let's feel those emotions and process them through lamenting with Christ. Lent is also a chance to repent. As as we lament the things going on in our lives, there's a chance where that lamenting goes a little bit deeper. We aren't just mourning the fallenness and the brokenness of the world that we live in, but we mourn the fallenness of our own hearts. Lent is an invitation to become self-aware and repent of the sins in our own life. It's a chance to echo Psalm 139 verses 23 and 24. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We are to invite the Holy Spirit to search us, to prod us, to expose areas where we must change in our lives. And this has to be a prayer. It has to be a willingness to allow the Spirit to show us our sin. Because we've, as we've talked about before, we can be so blind to our own shortcomings. We can be so blind and justify the sins in our own life. We must be willing to listen so to the, the hard truth and be honest with ourselves. When we look at that scripture, we actually look at the word used for sin. And it's actually more a more secular word that's used outside of Scripture all the, in, in biblical times in all kinds of different situations. And it can be literally translated as missing the goal, right? Warriors were trained with a slingshot. And they could use that slingshot and throw a rock at a hair on someone's head without sinning, right? They could throw it at a single hair without missing the goal. That's the, the, the idea, the thought process behind this concept of sin. And when I think about it, using, missing the goal, my mind goes straight to soccer. I'm not a huge soccer fan. Um, it's never really been big until we got a soccer team, right? Atlanta United. And when Atlanta United came to Georgia and they started this franchise, I followed it. I'm a sports guy. I like Atlanta sports team. I just started watching it. I had no basis for soccer whatsoever. And that sport is exhilarating. Like 90 minutes of, of pure general, adrenaline. You don't know. I mean, they could score at any moment. At any moment, a goal can happen, yet they don't happen very often. Oftentimes, you'll see teams draw zero to zero or win one to nothing. But the whole time, you're like on the edge of your seat because there could be a goal scored. And it's interesting with the, when in soccer, in order to score the goal, obviously the ball has to go into the goal. It has to go into the net. And there are all shots after shots on goal the whole time you can watch in a soccer match. And sometimes they're nowhere close. Like somebody will kick it and it goes a mile over the, the crossbar. It goes wide left and the goalie doesn't even move. Everybody's like, oh, that was a shank, right? Like there's no chance it's going in. But there's other times where the ball will hit the crossbar, bounce straight down, but not enter the net. Or it'll hit one of the 
the post on the edges and bounce away. There's even times that in order for it to count as a goal, the ball has to completely cross the goal line. Like it has to be 100% past it. If there is a fraction of an inch or a fraction of a millimeter that doesn't cross that goal line, it doesn't count as a goal, which is crazy because as a football person, if it's the other opposite way, like if the ball touches the line in the fraction, it's a, it's a touchdown. But with soccer, you can literally have somebody inside the goal, field the ball, and you're like, okay, they were inside, it went inside, but it doesn't count because they, they have a camera that looks down and sees that there's a fraction of an inch didn't cross that line, so there's no goal. And I think a lot of times this is how we view sin. We think, you know what, things like slavery and abuse or stealing Those are things where that ball goes wide left, and we know that that is a sin. But when it comes to things in our own life, laziness, pride, maybe a little white lie, we think, you know what, it's not as bad as those other ones, so it's not sin. But the truth is, if a fraction of an inch of the ball doesn't cross that, we've missed the goal. Sin is sin, whether it's wide left or a fraction of an inch short of the goal. And all sin, regardless of how serious we think it is, is destructive. It's falling short of being the humanity we were created to be. Sin isn't defined as a list of rights and wrongs, things you should do or shouldn't do. Sin is defined as missing the true humanity that we have been called into. It's when we miss the goal of following and being like Christ. The best way I can think to to illustrate this is is looking at evangelism in the church. Evangelism in the church, especially in recent history, has been defined by the Romans road. Do you guys know what I mean when I say Romans road? All right, it looks like at some passages inside of Romans, and it kind of follows these passages to convince you that you're a sinner and you need Jesus, right? All have sinned. The wages of sin is death. Christ died for us while we are still sinners. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's, those are like different passages from Romans. And it's like this, this message of, I mean, I've been in the park in South Carolina. I can remember sitting in Greenville, and there's several very legalistic Bible schools in the area and people coming up to me to convince me that I'm a sinner going to hell. I'm like, bro, I'm literally studying the Bible right now. Why are you telling me that? <laughs> but that's kind of where evangelism has been in, in recent history. Is you're a sinner, you need Jesus, and you need to change. And the truth is, the truth is, if we miss the goal and we're lying to ourselves about sin, we need to be convinced that we're a sinner, because that's true. We can't repent if we don't believe that we're a sinner. But the problem is, I think this is starting in the wrong spot. Because it's starting after the fall in Genesis 3. But if we're going to start with the good news of God, I think we should start where the Bible starts. And that's that you aren't a sinner. You are royalty. We were designed to be a royal priesthood. Both man and woman in the garden are, are stewards of creation. We are created to rule, to stand in between, like a priest stands in between. We're to stand in between creation and the creator. He, God chose to partner with us, but we fell short of that humanity. Instead of living into that, we chose our own path, and that is sin. Ephesians says that before the foundation of the world, we were created to be holy and blameless. In 1 Peter, we're called a royal priesthood. When we are saved, we are saved back into that royalty. That's where we should start. That is our true identity. It's not that you're a sinner. It's that you're a royal priest and you have fallen short 
We have missed the goal. And because we have missed the goal, we need to be saved. Sin is falling short of being truly human. It's missing the goal of perfect union with Christ. So when this sin enters our life, we are called to repent. And repenting is simply turning back. I have a lot of Greek here, and I'm not going to go into that because I, I don't know that it's helpful. But sin happens when we are confronted, or repentance happens when we are confronted by the Holy Spirit. And we think again about what we have done. We feel the regret, but we don't stop there. We seek forgiveness, but we also seek to change our actions. We decide to go a new way and to make it right. To repent is not just to feel guilty for our mistakes. It's to choose a new path. It's to be transformed. And personal repentance is painful. I think about Psalm 51, when David, after his sexual abuse of Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, We read in verses three through five, he describes the painful process that it took for him to finally come to repentance. He ignored his sin until God's hand was heavy on him, increasing his discomfort until finally he acknowledged his sin and repented. And as soon as David confessed, God forgave. Sometimes the pain of God's silence is, direct, is a direct result of our stubborn unwillingness to repent. But when we can find comfort in knowing that as soon as we humble ourselves and confess, God is faithful to forgive us. David writes in Psalm, another Psalm, verse 30, 32. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. As soon as David repented, he was forgiven. Mark Futato says this, David tried to deal with this sin by denying its presence in his life. And while this may have seemed to be the easiest way, it turned out to be the hard way. The result of denial were disastrous. David became ill. His bones were in agony. He groaned all day long and his vitality was reduced to nothing. The truth is, when we, are re- when we are faced with the reality of our sins, we can choose to ignore them or we can re- choose to repent of them. Repentance, lack of repentance will always lead to more brokenness, more agony, and even death. While repentance, leaning into God, acknowledging our sin, del- surrendering it to him and trusting him will always bring the opposite. It brings healing, peace, and life. Lent is a time where the church has a rhythm of practicing lament. And that lament also invites us into practicing repentance. And as we repent, as we lament, we are able to anticipate what God is going to do on Easter. So Lent is a chance to lament, repent, and Lent is a chance to anticipate. These things of of lamenting and repenting, it brings an anticipation for God's work of grace and holiness to begin in our lives. Sarah Phillips writes it like this. Lent is a time to be to open the doors of our hearts a little wider and understand that our Lord and understand our Lord a little deeper. 
so that when Good Friday and eventually Easter comes, it is not just another day in the church, but an opportunity to receive the overflowing graces God has to offer. And this season where, where we think about and remember the dark and broken parts of this world, it's all done with one eye on Easter. We know that Good Friday is coming. We know that Easter is on its way. And we know that that means freedom and forgiveness and triumph, victory. I think about, has anybody ever done a gender reveal or been to a gender reveal party? All right, it used to be a cool thing. Now it's not a cool thing anymore. When it was a cool thing, when I had my, my, my kids, okay? So we did a gender reveal. We had, we had a, the first girl, we had a big party, and we all did those confetti poppers, and pink confetti went everywhere. It was a great time. The second one, we didn't want to do the big show thing, so we did more. I like, colored an egg blue, and I colored an egg pink, and I let Lauren pick which one she thought it was going to be, and then we smashed them on our head, and the blue one covered me in egg, which meant the hard-boiled one was the pink one, and we were having another girl, right? So that's how we did our gender reveals. But have you ever seen the fails online? Absolutely hysterical. Like, if you, if you need a good laugh, just go online and look for gender reveal fails. There's one where, where they have this box that's been put together by the people at the balloon store. I don't know, wherever they got it, okay? <laughs> and the family's going to open it, and when they open it, it's going to be a bunch of pink balloons or a bunch of blue balloons, and they'll know how, what to anticipate. They'll know what's coming up, what child to prepare for. And they open it up, and somewhere there was a mess up in the memo, and a bunch of colorful balloons popped out, and they have no idea. Like, nobody there at the party knows what the answer is. Like, sure, they'll be able to go to their doctor later, but for the sake of the illustration, they have no idea what to anticipate the gender of their child will be, right? There's another one where there's obviously some other kids, and they're getting ready to have this gender reveal. The kids are holding the balloon. It's like a big black balloon. They pop it. Confetti is supposed to fall out, and the kids let go of the balloon, and the whole family is just watching it float off. (laughs) Never going to know. They're unable to anticipate what the gender of their child is going to be, right? There's this sense of not knowing what the future holds in these failed gender reveals. Lent is not like that. We know exactly what we can anticipate during the Lenten season. We can anticipate actually experiencing God in our lives. From our lament and repentance, we experience God. We experience his grace, his mercy, his power, his love, his forgiveness. We experience these things in our lives and this this forgiveness, this grace, it's not just like a, okay, you're all right, you'll, you'll, you're, that's fine, I'm just going to look the other way that you messed up. No, it's the, it's the making right of you. It's, it's how, uh, Warren Corbeck says it like this, forgiveness is the act by which God brings sinful man into rent, right relationship to himself, is the act of grace that is unfavored, undeserved favor on the basis of the work of God in Jesus Christ. It is offered to the repentant sender who trusts God's word of promise. It is God bringing sinful man into right relationship to himself. And we know that that is coming. We're able to celebrate Easter every Sunday because that is our truth. Lent is a time to sit back and reflect on, even though the world is not right, we know that one day it will be. We mourn, we grieve, we lament, we repent with one eye on Easter. It's a time of sanctification. It's a time of being made holy. As we fast and we pray, we open our eyes to the Holy Spirit to do a work of holy change in our lives. 
Second Peter 2, 3 through 4 says that his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us every great and precious promise so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in this world caused by evil desires. God gives us everything we need to be made holy. As we grow in our life in Christ, we will see that, that, that those qualities that represent a godly life, if you keep reading in Second Peter, qualities like virtue, self-control, knowledge, kindness and love those things are birthed in us by his spirit he gives us the power to change we're not stuck in our sin the repentance means we can be made holy we can be changed i think about it like chocolate milk any chocolate milk fans if i have a glass of milk and i put the chocolate in the milk and i just let it sit there i don't have chocolate milk right i've got a glass of milk with chocolate in the bottom uh, the way I've heard this illustrated before, the milk is like a person, right? And the person, when they receive Jesus Christ, they are given the Holy Spirit, all right? The chocolate's like the Holy Spirit. There you go. There's your quote from church today, all right? The chocolate is given to the milk. The Holy Spirit is given to us as believers in that moment. We receive him. But it's when that chocolate milk is stirred. It's when it's incorporated into the milk that we see the life change, and this small, many holes in this illustration, but I think it gets the point of cross. It's when our life is stirred that the Holy Spirit inside us changes us, gifts us. Yes, God sees us as holy the moment we're justified, the moment we surrender our life to him, but it's more than just being justified in that moment. He changes us. He makes us holy. He heals our brokenness. The stirring in the believer is allowing the Holy Spirit to transform their soul. And when we transformed, like when we are transformed by the Holy Spirit, we begin to carry out God's will, will here on earth. And it takes place, as it takes place, we begin to see and anticipate the day when all will be made right. I like how uh, Craig Keener puts it when he's talking about the Lord's Prayer, which side note, we're teaching Addie Lee the Lord's Prayer and she's like almost got it. And taught the power of that prayer, when you hear it genuinely said through the, the uh, eyes and the mouth of a five-year-old, it's incredible. Go, go reread the Lord's Prayer. It's a powerful moment. But Craig Keeter, when talking about the Lord's Prayer, says this, the hallowing of God's name, the consummation of his reign and the doing of his will are all versions of the same end time promise. Everything will be set right someday. No more crime, no more discrimination, no more hatred, no more sickness or grief. Of course, that day will bring the end of those not doing God's will. So in his mercy, he has delayed it for their sake. But we who long for God, for God's will on earth in the future, ought to live consistently with our longing in the present, working for God's righteousness and seeking his will here. Okay, I'm closing. I know it's been a long one. <laughs> but here's what, here's what I want to close. Nowhere in scripture are you commanded to practice Lent, 
right? It's, it's something that's done in the more liturgical churches. We don't necessarily do it corporately here. Um, there are several members that do follow Lent. Nowhere in Scripture are you commanded to practice Lent. Just like you're not commanded to have a Christmas tree, and you're not commanded to, to do those other holidays that we see throughout the calendar. But Lent is a time that the church has set aside to make sure that it, it's a rhythm of being intentional about lamenting, repenting, and anticipating. You don't have to practice Lent, but you should have rhythms in your life that help you practice and focus on being intentional in these things, on being intentional in lamenting, repenting, and anticipating. So let me close from a, with a quote from arguably the greatest professor to ever live, and definitely one of my favorites, Dr. Bob Black from my alma mater, Southern Westland University. Okay, he says this, Easter Sunday is wonderful beyond words, it's true. But if we hurry past the cross on our way to the empty tomb, empty tomb we don't understand either. In Lent, I walk with Christ to his cross because he walks with me as I carry mine. Thomas A. Kempis says that Jesus has many who love his kingdom, but few who will bear his cross. I close with these questions. Will you pick up your cross and follow him? Will you take time to lament, repent, and anticipate the work that God is doing? Let's pray.